Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Rachel, every week you get more and more professional on the uh, the announcement. Not that you started anything but professional, but I I could shake it up. I could try rapping. I don't know if you want to. I hear think me you rap, need to get a, 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 a second career as a as a reader or a voiceover artist. It's a lovely voice you have. Why, thank you, Eric. Why, thank you. Uh, so you're getting ready for a big trip coming up, yes? As are you. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, hard to believe. Yeah, Mexico. We're hoping to go and come back with all of our body parts intact. That would be amazing. Just don't go on the on the beach near the ocean. They like to, you know, sometimes shady characters like to come up, you know, <laughs> in a boat. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, but it's going to be lovely. I will say that. There's so many lovely areas in Mexico um, and just lovely people. And, you know, May, what, May 5th is kind of a big day too. So we're going to miss that a little bit, but hopefully there'll still be some celebrations over the weekend and into next week. It'll be nice. For all of our listeners who are listening, Rachel and I do love each other. She did accuse me of cheating on her by doing a podcast without her. It is a work event, though. We are going to uh, be in the same place together. We are not going together. I was just thinking through the conversation here, Rachel. Maybe we should move on to our distinguished guest of the day, though. More to follow post-trip, but nobody should worry. Absolutely. No, absolutely not. No, no, no. Including HR. Hundreds and hundreds of people are going, and, and I will just be there to help support and make sure it goes smoothly. So um, I'd really love to welcome Rob Flanders. He's the head of threat and incident response at BAE Systems. And I can't wait to have this conversation, Rob. So many things, so many things for us to talk about. Welcome. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Fantastic. So, Rob, I, you're head of threat and incident response for BAE Systems. I mean, that's kind of a, a significant role that you have for, for quite an, for quite a large company. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of what you do, your team, you know, day to day and, uh, and have you seen some really interesting incidents that you could share or not share? Sure. So I don't big me up too much, please. Um, I, um, sit effectively within our, um, core enterprise strategy function. Um, and, um, effectively working to the the CISO or Chief Information Security Officer. Um, and my role is is effectively to look across our PLC business, so basically everything outside of, of our US business, and um, understand the the types of the cyber instance and, and cyber threats that, that we're dealing with and um, get a sense for, for how they're impacting us as a wider company. So obviously the um, the specifics mm-hmm. of each incident tend to be held within each of our business units, which is is natural. They have the expertise and the the local knowledge to be able to deal with the the instance in in the detail and um, with with the expertise they need. Um, but effectively taking a step back, looking at the organisational whole, um, is where I come in, and and I guess looking at, at trends and um, the the strategic view is is where I fit in. Um, in terms of juicy instance, um, I can't reveal too much, but I guess there are some some really significant trends right. that that are worth picking up on, and the the big one is is probably supply chain. I mean, it's 
no different in um, in the US um, right. mm. as as it is over here. But certainly from a, a, a defense perspective, we've got a a, a very large uh, supply chain and and even a a, a digital supply chain in it in itself without even worrying about the physical aspects is 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 very very large and um, we're seeing a lot more uh, compromises of of that supply chain not necessarily with an intent to onward compromise of, of ourselves but more because small to medium-sized right. businesses are just really taking a hammering right now and I think we've we've seen that somewhat in the in the guidance right. Rob any trends that you're observing? Yeah, sure. So, like I say, the the uptick seems to have really been in these, um, you know, five to fifty person organisations who maybe don't necessarily have a specific cybersecurity function, or you know, maybe have a an MSP that deals with IT for them, and and cyber is either explicitly rolled into that or slightly forgotten about, depending on how much money they've spent. Maybe um, not wanting to uh, to do anybody. Um, right a disservice but that's that's where the the weak link comes yeah. in it's um organizations like that have an incident and almost have nowhere to turn it's either not in their contract with them and a service provider or frankly the people that are buying their it off don't have the capability themselves and then all of a sudden lots of that problem space ends up to a certain extent coming back to their biggest customer because they've told us about it and gone well we have no real way of fixing this so you're just going to have to to sit it out and so that's that's, I guess, why we end up with quite a lot of interaction with wow. with with that element of the the supply chain. How do you ensure your suppliers take the right steps? I mean, they're a lot smaller than BAE. How do you ensure that they are doing what they need to do? So, when you're working on the F thirty five, the componentry or capabilities they're providing are up to BAE standards. It's a it's a really really hard problem a really really hard problem. Um, we have you know hundreds of thousands of suppliers, so to a certain extent, it's a matter of prioritization. But also, um, there's, there's there's several kind of contractual levers we can pull. Um, so we flow down our uh, security requirements from our customers to our suppliers. Um, that's sometimes more productive in some areas than than others and it to a certain extent expect um it depends on the maturity of our customer in terms of how they've written a contract for us as to how effectively we can flow it down to them um and then likewise um okay there is a there is a threat line element to this which is if there's a particular supplier we're trusting with um something that's explicitly very sensitive, then at that stage, we, we look at a, an additional level of um, assurance, whether or not that's um, getting some independent pen testing or working with them directly on their security infrastructure or bringing them into um, some of the, the wider defense sharing ecosystems that exist in order that they can uh, manage themselves in, a, in an appropriate way. We've got, like I say, it, it, it depends very specifically, but it is a massive problem. And to a certain extent, um, there's a there's a discussion to be had about how we within defense collectively do that better. But also, um, I, I notice, um, I think it's NIST, have got some, some new guidance coming out soon. Um, it'll be interesting to see how um, almost UK PLC or 
um, you know, USPLC writ large try and tackle these kinds of problems because the last thing we want to do is for a, a small supplier to be answering to five or six of their big customers and answering all the same questions with a slightly different spin, wasting their time when they need to be responding to an instant. Right, right. I've been, I've actually been on the other side with the large systems integrator flowing down their requirements to us. Breathing down your neck. They can be quite onerous. I'm sorry? Breathing down your neck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's breathing down the neck. It's, it's, you know, it tends to come, it, it doesn't come from you or it doesn't come from the mission side. It comes more from contracts. And some of the terms you'd see flow down have absolutely zero applicability to our business. And in our business, which is a hundred, the government business is a hundred percent U.S. citizen, air gap. I mean, we've got all kinds of capabilities. We are very well protected from a supply chain perspective and everything else. But some of the onerous requirements around reporting, I can only imagine what it's what, what the feelings are like on a on a small business that doesn't do a lot of government or DoD work that wants to work with you. Um, you know, and, and, and this is important. We have to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it pushes away innovation in the market, right? It does. So you, you, yeah. you have somebody who, or an organization maybe that has a, a particular product or, or capability that could be really beneficial to, you know, whether it's MOD or, or DOD, but that needs to come through a defense prime of some description. And all of a sudden you're not just dealing with, the customer or the end customer requirements, you're dealing with somebody in the middle who um, has has been forced to, to reflow those requirements in a specific way. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's onerous. Um, there's been a number of initiatives in, in the UK defense space, so um, Defense Cyber per- Purchasing Partnership, DCPP. Um, I think I've got yeah. that acronym right. Um, who've attempted to try and do a, um, you know, effectively assure suppliers once and then provide that assurance out to to different buyers so that that you can start to play in the 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 bigger bigger pond as it were but even that the the suppliers themselves saying well there's a fee to sign up for this service i i can't afford that um it's it's not a particularly big one but you're right there it becomes additional barriers to entry which then you know the trade-off with that is is that you miss out on on capability fundamentally well, exactly. Or, or you have, you know, we're in a global economy. You have to keep foreign nationals off the network or they can't have access to certain content or information. But that's not the way the world works anymore, right? The, the concept of a foreign national in 1940 was a lot different. Today, it's a global workforce. We have incredible minds from all over the globe that want to partake and contribute to this, to this world we work in. It's tough, Rachel. It's 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 a tough one. I think it's an interesting point, and to a certain extent, that's I think where we need to start looking towards places like standards bodies or places like NIST, where um, they can have a non-prejudiced conversation about what good security looks like without necessarily having the the burden of you know, enforcing sovereignty in in the conversation necessarily as as the front and center consideration, and so I think there's a lot to be said for how 
governments or or I guess national security sponsors, sorry, national cyber sponsors around um, I guess the West and you know the rest of the world writ large, how they engage with those bodies and how they can drive that conversation productively so that almost it's not a, a government setting the rules and, and setting the agenda because in the nicest possible way, the agenda set by the US government is going to be fundamentally different from that set by either um, you know China or, or even some of um, close allies, just the nuances of the, the way law works, the way privacy is is contained, GDPR, just as, I guess, an example between Europe and, and the US. Mm-hmm. Effectively providing a, an independent body and giving that independent body a power to be able to, to support, I guess, tech standards more more widely might give us an, an opportunity there potentially, but it, it becomes a harder conversation to have. You're absolutely right. So how do you deal with the changing regulations that, you know, you have to deal with at BAE Systems from a from a threat and incident response perspective, just adhering to the different regulatory requirements? How do you think about that problem in, in your day-to-day work? So the the honest answer is that regulations come first and last. Um Regulations come first in the sense that that's what we're given in our contract, and therefore that is the bare minimum security wrapper that we need in in order to, to work in. But then as soon as you take the, those regulations outside of the context of their individual project or individual system and look at us as a wider organization, all of a sudden regulation almost becomes the lowest common denominator. In the vast majority of cases, whilst it might be expressed slightly differently or, you know, the the nuances of the language might be different, fundamentally, the outcomes that we're striving for as a business in terms of meeting our risk appetite um, and, and understanding our threat landscape, those priorities are fundamentally the same as our customers. And whilst they might give us regulation that says, you know, do a specific thing or, or deliver you know, specific response times or whatever it is, 99% of the time we're striving for that or better already. So it becomes a case of, okay, so this is our regulatory environment. You know, there's maybe five, six, even 10 different regulatory standards we, we have to align to and meet. And there's an argument that says, okay, so if we dot the I's and cross the T's on all of these, we'll you know, be spending years just trying to get around all of our business. And the answer is actually, okay, how do we use that as the the contractual baseline, but then take a look at where we are and where we want to be going forward and then apply that across the top? Because the answer is in, like I say, the vast majority of cases, compliance is there. And um, it's about, like I say, a threat-led approach rather than a, a regulatory or, or contractual one, for, at least for us anyway. And I, I know certainly um, if you look at the banking sector, they are very much moving towards a, a, a similar view as well. Um, whilst they have a much greater, I guess, financial focus, um, obviously we we have a financial focus as well as a private company, but um, you know that that is their entire bread and butter, whereas ours is you know supporting national security as a as a primary motivator. Um, they are also taking the steps beyond regulation to ensure their business is protected. And I think um, certainly as, as soon as you get into the, the large enterprise space, that's where every, everybody should be focusing their attention. Yes, regulation is important. Yes, demonstrating your compliance is important. But if all you do is that, then you're permanently going to be behind the curve, I think. 
that's the problem, isn't it, Eric? It's, it's, we're always kind of catching, trying to catch up feverishly. <laughs> well, I, I think there is yeah. a, I think there is a balance there. Right. And it's, it sounds like Rob and BA systems have, have successfully figured that out. I know we struggle mm -hmm. with it, Rachel. I think, you know, like most things in life, how much you have to do the compliance, the regulatory component. Absolutely. But you're also a going concern. And if you were just doing what the government told you, there would be no innovation, right? Yeah. Commercial world exists and it moves so much faster than government. So that balance has to be there. Fortunately, we're getting better at cybersecurity and a lot of companies out in the world today are taking it seriously. And I'm, in my opinion, you know, meeting a lot of the regulatory requirements is uh, table stakes. But okay. you're just doing it. Yeah. And then you have that small equipment provider on the F-35 program that has nobody in IT. And you got to help them, right? Because they make something critical, but they don't have the capability. Rob, how did you get into this business? I know Rachel loves that question always. <laughs> where did you come from? So first you're cheating this on Rachel good. and now it's you're stealing not. her questions. This, this It's not going well, Eric. Well, you know, it's early morning for her and she isn't feeling as aggressive today. She, normally she's a bit more froggy. That's, <laughs> I'm only on my uh, first cup of coffee. Sorry about that. Yeah, I can, I can answer that. So um, I joined BAE Systems as a cyber person after after university. Um, I did a geology degree of all things, which um, Rachel has already promised she'll ask me about. So uh, um, I'll, uh, I, I, I'll await that question with bated breath. Um, but before that, um, always had an interest in, um, I guess, IT and computers. And to a certain extent, um, an interest in cybersecurity was born out of problem solving. Um, I didn't have broadband Sorry, I'm showing my age now. Um, didn't have broadband um, until I was about 15 or 16 growing up. Um, but obviously, the school I went to had a very decent internet connection. So it was a case of, do I go home and um, sit there for four hours while I wait for this thing to download? Or do I find a way around the school's uh, IT infrastructure restrictions and just download it at school where it'll take 10 <laughs> minutes and then shove it on a USB stick? Um, yeah, um, you don't get away with that anymore, kids, unfortunately. Um, but <laughs> um, that and kind of several other things, you know, as soon as somebody's interest is peaked, it, it becomes a, a puzzle solving thing. And whilst I always thought I was going to end up being a professional scientist coming out of university, it was a, a skill set that whilst I hadn't necessarily nurtured in the most productive way or the most professional way, um, it was certainly something I could you know, talk about in, um, in interviews and stuff. And I was fortunate that, um, that BA said, uh, said yes. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I come into the picture. I'll tell you, Rob, my youngest Michael has, uh, found a way to get around the web gateway at his school so he can play video games and things. And he even created his own website that people can go to that isn't blocked that allow them to play games and things almost like wow. a proxy to get around the web uh, the, the web security at school. So there's still hope for our, our youth, our nation's youth. Um, they're oh, still wow, doing what is, you were uh, doing many years ago. Yeah, indeed. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be mean about the kids of today. I definitely shouldn't because yeah, it's, it, we were talking just before the show about, um, how, how natural it is now with, with people in technology. I mean, I, 
like I say, I grew up on broadband. Mm. So the concept of fast internet wasn't really a thing till I was in secondary school. But obviously, with the speed at which everything's moved, as as you say, the the next generation, or I guess the generation after now, um, those people are going to have a innate skill set with with this tech technical capability and will it, you know it's it's unconscious to them how how to use these technologies it's it's not something right. they have to learn or discover they just know because that's what they what they use yeah they grew up on it yeah, yeah. for sure for sure and that's what make, gets me hopeful for the future of cyber right i mean I, I, that's how i think we're going to get ahead of this thing at some point is you know, just the innate abilities uh, uh, and understanding of how things work. And to your point, Rob, problem solving, you know, hacking your your video enabled toy, right? Because you want to know how it works. And then you start kind of saying, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> this, is like, this is a little like not safe uh, in terms of what it's capturing and, and who can access it. So that that gives me hope for the path ahead, I should say. I think we're so, playing cops and robbers for a long time because those two-year-olds who are learning how to use iPhones <laughs> or IT, they can be good or bad, just like any technology <laughs> out there. I've said it before, just like fire and water and unit, it can be used for good and bad, Rachel. Cynic, cynical. I don't know. I like I, I like to believe in the good of people. I, I think good will triumph. Rob, what do you think? You're on the incident response side. You see a lot of bad. Which way is it heading? I'm 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 really hopeful. Like um, you can you can play the argument. I think so. Just looking back a couple of weeks ago at the um, lapsus arrests that happened in the UK, like um, ostensibly teenagers and young adults who clearly had some non-trivial cyber skills, or at least were associated with a group who had some non-trivial cyber skills. Um, we haven't seen specifically, I think, what they're accused of yet um, in terms of the technical detail. But those people clearly picked up that capability from somewhere. And, you know, they, they didn't necessarily pick it up um, from a, a a teacher or a classroom or a you know a professionally driven perspective, they were curious and and they could understand right. the environment they were working in. Like in that particular case, it doesn't appear to have been necessarily productively for society channeled energy, if that's the right way of putting that. But at the same time, for for every one of the the people that doesn't necessarily do it ethically, there's um, you know almost certainly two, three, four people that are, are looking at it from a, a, a lawful perspective. And even if those people don't end up taking up a specific career as a cyber person, whether that's a pen tester or an instant responder or whatever, getting those people who have that awareness out into industry more widely, who have at least, you know, a, a, I guess more than the passing understanding of cybersecurity, things like if we go back three or four years, there was some uh, some comments made by some members of the UK Parliament about uh, how they shared their passwords with member of staff. And I kind of looked at that and thought, somebody of my generation would never even have considered that as a solution, let alone entertained it as a viable business practice. And so the more we can bring that expertise up, the more we can bring those people forward, not just in cyber, but across the board so that cyber is more widely understood within, I guess, business writ large. I think the better off everybody's going to be for sure. So yeah, I've got yeah, I've got a rosy take as well, Rachel. 
public service announcement here. What we're saying is sharing passwords is not an appropriate activity in pretty much any case, unless it's life or death. Wow, that's that's extreme. I mean, my my mom's password for Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Netflix is after you for that, though, by the sounds of it. Yeah, they're kind of, they've actually know, just they're publicly stated me. they're going to be breaking that down, Rachel. Like different addresses, lo- different logins. So, but it's it's not a good practice, is what we're saying. Uh, no, that's fair. Absolutely fair. And, you know, multi-factor authentication, you know how I feel about that. It's a real pain, but I got to tell you, it saved me. I mean, I, I get constant updates of people trying to access like my Facebook account, which I don't know why I still have one, but uh, because I've got the MFA, uh, they're not able to to technically, I guess, get in, which is makes me feel better every time I have like, you know, 10 emails that somebody wants an access code to get into my Facebook for some reason. Exactly. So, but, but Rob, yeah. to your point, I saw some of the, uh, I think it was Telegram output from the uh, Lapsus group. Some of the people who were uh, re- reportedly their Telegram chat, but it, it was, it was mm-hmm. crazy. It would, mm-hmm. it would be three stooges like type of banter <laughs> almost uh, although you're from the uk maybe uh what's the equivalent benny hill maybe rachel oh, benny hill oh my god no maybe to three stooges i mean it was it was bizarre i'm watching these reported like mr you know, bean maybe i don't I'm know just mr. look bean at some of the like. output it's it's crazy the uh, juvenile well i guess they, some of them might have been juvenile uh, right. but some of the banter was just just off the charts in my mind maybe i'm just getting old it it was an interesting example for sure. Their opsec was interesting in itself, shall shall we say? Um, I think in particular, I, I believe was it White Dock Spin was one of the the people either accused or arrested. I I, I forget the the specifics. I think so, it, but it's but, been a long week for yeah. me. I have to go back to the record books. <laughs> um, I think and, so. Um, and um, as I understand it, they had run a doxing service, which you would presume comes with the risk of being doxxed yourself um it's a it's it's a a challenging environment to operate in i think i would say from a security perspective and um and that's without law enforcement being involved with the with the capability they have and um yeah it, it it's extremely difficult to 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 operate properly anonymously on the internet now so yeah. Not only that, so, and I'm, I'm massively paraphrasing. I mean, there was chat like, you'd know, be like, sup, uh, gotta go, mom's calling me for dinner. <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, like I said, it's reported telegram activity. I haven't verified it, but it was it was bizarre, some of the chat I was reading through. I, I was riveted for, for 20 minutes or so, just like, okay, this is the adversary. Anyway, I, let's They, they let's are the adversary, but, but you, you can't discount you know the impact they had on the the people they they went after like the fact that agreed you know they were in broad terms mostly socially engineered their way into a position of privilege on um the networks they were attacking and then from there um managed to you know get action on it sounds like from the description microsoft gave of their compromise they weren't aware that that they had been compromised until the um, uh, the attackers basically said, "Oh yeah, I'm downloading something massive from Microsoft." At which point their um, their threat hunting team went and and put the kibosh on it. Naturally, I read that. but at, at the same time, um, it comes back to the the point we were talking about before: is this capability has, has clearly come naturally 
to, to these people. They haven't been on OSCP. They haven't been on, you know, a million SANS courses. Like they know their stuff. And that's, that's both a good thing. And I guess slightly terrifying, depending on your perspective. Well, I'm going to <laughs> Rachel's comment. I mean, that is the beauty of, I mean, you know, kids have this amazing capability to, to learn and, and there's so much talent out there on, on the positive side too. We see that. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Indeed. So let's talk uh, five eyes intelligence Alliance. Ooh. Yes. That's a hot topic, right? Rachel, have any questions? Uh, I have so many questions. I mean, it's, you know, one of the things that I'm always interested in Rob though is, is that cooperation, right? Uh, uh, amongst nations, uh, you know, cause collectively there's, we're going to have to find some common ground, right? If we're going to, you know, writ, writ large the cyber issue, uh, particularly with some nation state actors, um, you know, there's been a lot going on uh, with Five Eyes. I mean, it's as someone who's in the UK, kind of what's your perspective there on, you know, how we're going to get to global cooperation, uh, both within Five Eyes, but also kind of, uh, again, looking at it, the larger, like a UN of cyber cooperation uh, type thinking. So, I'll do the five eyes bit first and then do the UN bit. You've thrown me a big curveball there. Um, so the, the if you didn't throw in Ukraine, you should be happy. Oh, well, it's coming. I try not to go there. Try not to go there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the five eyes bit is really positive. Do we, the, the latest advisory from CISA that came out from CISA, NCSE, ACSE, New Zealand, and, and Canada as well. I forget their acronyms. Um, that's not really traditional Five Eyes territory, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that certainly in the UK, I don't know what the perspective is from the US, um, Five Eyes to us normally means conversations had behind closed doors about adversaries or intelligence that is not fit for public consumption. And there is an understanding that that, that goes on. And obviously, um, that is as positive as it can be, but there are there's almost no transparency there. So to a certain extent, it's it's a little bit forgotten about. Clearly, it, it does a good job for what it does. But it right. is interesting to see that being brought really to the to the public fore and for CISA to be saying, look, we are publishing this in conjunction with our allies um, because it pertains to a very specific threat. And that, I think, certainly in the UK, that, that made an impact because – um, we've had a, a number of advisories from NCSE, which fundamentally have very similar recommendations to um, mm -hmm. to CISA, and that's obviously a good thing. But um, NCSE you know, being the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK. Uh, yes. Right. Yep. Yes, that's that's I think correct. Yeah. Um, obviously, the the alignment on the recommendations is is natural and is always going to be there. But that joint messaging on, you know, these are who the bad guys are. This is specifically what they're capable of. This is what their history is in terms of their attacks. A combination of the, I guess, the bulk attribution that came out in that in that um, piece, along with the, we have all got together and come to collective common ground on language on this and, and recommended it, really speaks, I think, to the amount that they are taking this particular element of the threat landscape very seriously. And if this continues, it can only be a good thing. Um, I was at a talk a couple of weeks ago and um, the head of the um, New Zealand National Cyber Agency was, was talking there. And she said that every time they have a conversation between the 
the, the Five Eyes um, NCSC equivalent, they always have to, to start with what the job of that agency is, because CISA has a specific role, and that doesn't normally match in you know bulk terms to what NCSC's remit right. is in the UK. Um, NCSC is partner organization is GCHQ is an intelligence agency. I'm not sure where CISA sits in the wider three-letter acronyms soup that you guys have. That, oh, boy, that don't go there. Intelligence. Um, <laughs> don't go there. I got yelled at in October from, by people from CISA because I didn't consider them an intelligence agency. They're an inte- anyway, let's not go there. Um, They're part of Homeland Security. Uh, there we are, then. There we are. Which but, is a civilian agency. Yeah. But the perspective with intelligence is- components. Yeah, the perspective is different in our allies as well, again, based on what their laws and their um, their interpretation has been of, of how they do cybersecurity well. So it's clearly been challenging for them to to come together in a structured way and to have to go through all that rigmarole every time they talk about things in order to get that collaboration going. But it's obviously really, really positive, And it's had a really, really big impact, I think, particularly this time around to see everybody come to the table together and go, no, it's it's this. And this is what you should be doing about it. And for non-cyber people, I think it really speaks well, because if one national cyber agency says something, all the cyber people might listen up. But for mm-hmm. you know members of the exec or um, people who aren't cyber specialists, they might turn around and go, oh, yeah, your agency has told you to do something just in the same way as the guy that manages the roads tells the guy that managed roads to, to do stuff. And I ignore that, too. Like... They- it, it, it's at a different level when you you know you can point to to headlines and say no the Americans are saying this, our local government is saying this, and all our allies around the globe are saying this as well. Oh, and by the way, it's it's us that's that's in the middle of this you know potential storm that they're warning us about. It's a it's a lot easier message to land. Uh, can I jump to your UN question? Because I like yeah, that. but before Ooh, yes. you do, Rob, I have a qu- <laughs> I have a follow up. Go on. Before you do, I have a quick follow up. So. CIS has rolled out this program in the States called Shields Up. It's, it's, it's exactly yes. in line with what you're talking about, right? So the Five yes, Eyes Nations indeed. have come together and said, hey, there is a critical and imminent threat out here yes. that we need to deal with. Companies of America, this is CIS's Shields Up, you need to patch, you need to, you know, there are things you need to do. We've been on high alert now since February. How long can we do that? How much longer before people grow weary, they get tired when we haven't seen significant abnormal behavior? I think at this point, it's fair to say there's been more cyber activity going into Russia than coming out of Russia. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, how much longer can we go? So I think this is a really- Or how do we evolve? Yeah, this is a really good point. So lots of cyber people in- businesses were run really hot over Christmas, thanks to Log4j. Mm-hmm. Like, that that was just what happened because- Oh, right. That was the predecessor to all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah Not indeed. late necessary, right. but right, we had Log4j where indeed. everybody's so that, going hard. Yeah, yeah, indeed. That landed 8th of December-ish, from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, let's be honest, most people were not completely done with the issue two weeks later when it came to the Christmas break. That meant right. it dragged right. into January. You know, certainly I know we got our critical piece patched very quickly, and I know lots of other people did as well. But it was a really difficult one to deal with from a, 
you know, a stack investigation perspective. And I think there were some vendors who I won't call out on this podcast who didn't have patches available till mid-January. Not naming any names. Um, regardless, everybody was run hard over that period. We moved into the, the Russia and Ukraine crisis. And I think- and, and that was just a year after Sunburst, which we were doing. Like, so we've been running hot for a long time. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And what you need to be healthy in a security team is to be running at normal pace. So when something specific to you and critical to you is there, you can notice that small change, whatever it might be, whether that's in your SOC or, or in your you know wider assurance platform, so that you can jump on that and then be able to say, I've got the time and the bandwidth and the capability to be able to go and investigate that anomaly and and prove it's it it's not something malicious. If you're running everybody at a billion miles an hour because they're dealing with this existential threat that you know is being put forward by government, I'm not saying they're wrong, CSA, because they're not, yeah. but um, there is absolutely a, a balance to be had. Certainly our perspective from BAE internally was Russia has always been a threat to us. We've always looked at Russia as part of the wider threat landscape. Um, our understanding of that threat landscape includes all of the recommendations that, that CISA already provided. So we'll keep a very close eye on this. But fundamentally, what we're doing from a cyber defensive perspective will continue because we want to be ready when the time comes, not running around with our hair on fire, trying to make you know small tier up, updates or upgrades to, to specific areas just for, you know, if or when something major did happen, we, we would then have to pull everybody back out of whatever they got stuck into and then refocus them. They, that, that just right. wouldn't be healthy. Um, as the threat has escalated or the messaging around the threat has escalated following Joe Biden's announcement a couple of weeks ago and then this joint advisory, at that stage, we were starting to think about, okay, now we've got some more specificity around this. There is lots of value in doing that extra layer of assurance, but again, not driving people to the point that they're working all hours of the day. You know, right. unfortunately, security people like to be heroes, if I might say that in the nas nastiest possible Agreed. way. And that isn't like security people should we never need be heroes. heroes. Well, I would argue we do need heroes, but at the same time, we shouldn't ever make it so that heroes are the only way to get out of a problem. It should have always been dealt with, whatever the cyber incident was, by effective preparation, planning, and, and operational execution. There shouldn't ever be a point that one guy was in the SOC working 24 hours a day for three days just to hunt down whatever the problem was. That's, that's just not sustainable. Yeah, not sustainable um, at all. Right? So, sorry, I don't know whether I answered your question or not in that little rant. but <laughs> No, I, <laughs> um, I, I think you did. The, the difference yeah. I see on this one CISA seemed to target America more than the DIB or the government with their Shields Up campaign, right? Yes. Small town America. Hey, yes. all businesses out there, you don't have to have anything to do with the government. You are susceptible right now. You are potentially at risk, especially critical infrastructure. But mm -hmm. this is what you can and should do. I saw a noticeable change in the states in that regard. 
but we should move on to UN because we're almost at the at the uh, end of time here. And I know you want to get to Rachel's second part. It was a doozy, Rachel. So just picking up on your, your last point, just before I do move on, um, I think it's another interesting, it's not really cultural difference, but operational difference between the US and the UK. And, and obviously it, it varies between the rest of the Five Eyes as well. Um, lots of critical national infrastructure in the UK is either nationalized or pseudo nationalized mm-hmm. um, just because of the nature of, of how we operate. Um, we don't have, we, we technically have private water companies, but the government has a lot of sway as their regulator in how they manage cybersecurity. And they've been talking, you know, as, as a regulatory body for a long time about those things. And it might just be a matter of scale. It might be a matter of um, just how things are more federated in the States. Um, I, I wonder whether just because of the, the inherent advantage we've had of, I guess, maintaining that nationalized or more nationalized perspective in the UK, certainly compared to the US at least, um, that gives us a more effective route in to start having these conversations earlier. Shields Up makes a lot of sense because from my understanding of of how critical national infrastructure works in the States, there are small to medium-sized enterprises who look after water or utilities or, you know, whatever it might be in some states for very small areas and just naturally, it might be that CISA hasn't managed to touch base with them yet. Um, and exactly. again, that's just a, I guess, a natural nuance and, and the difference between between the approaches. But um, yeah, it's obviously really positive to see because that messaging does need to go out. And certainly even in the UK, there are small to medium sized businesses who support critical national infrastructure, um, whether they're part of the defense supply chain or elsewhere. And they do need to hear the message, too. Um, I'd like to think they should have yeah. heard it already before this, but they they still need to hear it again, I guess. <laughs> in the States, you and I could buy a small electric generating mm-hmm. organization or water company in some places, and, and we could decide that, you know, security is top priority or, or profit is. And right. that's just the way it works here. Yeah. Um, so it is, you know, they're, they're very different models yeah. that we have. Going back to your UN question, because I really want to get to it just before we finish, if that's okay. Um, I think there's genuinely something to be said, and this is somewhat of a criticism, I guess, towards the joint advisory. And Mm -hmm. this speaks to um, some of the things that some senior members of NCSC have have said very recently. Um, We say a lot in the context of recruitment and improving cyber capability that cyber needs to be more diverse. And I think lots of people understand that as a concept in terms of operating cyber within a business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you can't be narrow-minded about your recruitment pool. You can't be um, entertaining unconscious biases um, when you're doing interviewing, all of those kinds of things. But I think where that has somewhat been forgotten a little bit, and it's something, like I say, that NCSC have mentioned recently, is that if we look at I guess the the Anglosphere, if the Anglosphere are deciding how the internet operates, fundamentally that's alienating three quarters plus of the world's population because they don't speak English. Exactly. And it's not about us versus China in terms of who controls the internet. It's about those people in the middle who maybe have had to buy 5G equipment from China because China are the only people that make it and license it in, in the mm-hmm. way that 
means they can buy it. Or maybe China has put their 5G infrastructure in for free because that's part of their Belt and Road Initiative. All of a sudden, their view of how information security, privacy, um, how to manage access to the internet from their nation becomes very mm-hmm. China-skewed rather than Western-skewed. And we don't win an argument about um, you know, getting those people on board by saying, hey, look, freedom, freedom is free and freedom is great. And so you should do our way of doing things. Like, if you do they, it our way. If, yeah, if, if you do it our way, freedom is free. And that's great. But at the same time, they then look at China and say, yeah, but there's a big bill if we buy it from you guys. And um, frankly, China's giving it to us for free. And to a certain extent, their social and cultural norms may lend themselves more to a, um, a more heavily regulated internet environment, if I might put it in diplomatic terms, um, than oh, maybe a open and... I guess broadly deregulated Free. environment that we're that yeah. we're used to in in the West, and it's about making sure that we can have the conversations in a not in a kind of colonial way, obviously, but in a yeah. way that means that our I guess our offering to those nations and to those uh, organisations out in in that middle ground, ensuring that our offering is the best one and the one they can go for, and I think we really need to to change the game in terms of our approach to that, because it can't be, as I say, just, oh yeah, but we're the good guys. So, you know, you should follow us because frankly, that doesn't cut it. <laughs> well, and I think in many cases, it's the joint choice between having capability or not for your people. Right? Yeah. And that's, that's what it comes down China's to. China's giving right. it to us. We'll have 5g capability. We can build on, build our, build our country, build our economy, whatever. If if we don't get it from them for free, we may not get it. We may not be able to afford it. We have different priorities, whatever it may be. That's a tough decision. But we are near the end of the show, Rachel. We're, we're at the end of the show. I know. I know. Can I? Do I have time for like one one more quick question talking about diversity, though, coming into cyber? You got one minute. Okay. So this is this is the question I've been wanting to ask. The entire time, Rob, as you know, uh, so you have a Master of Earth Sciences degree from Oxford, and and um, you still have a, very much a keen interest in Arctic Ocea- Oceanography, uh, which I find fascinating. But it's, you know, we talk about diversity of thought and problem solving coming into cyber. Um, how did you kind of make that decision to move from what would be a really cool, you know, kind of... Um, I guess, career path, if you were to pursue that one versus cyber, I mean, they're both really interesting. And uh, I mean, how do you, how do you make that shift or that decision? It was very difficult to, to be honest. Um, clearly both are attractive career options. Um, I guess the option of being academic, of being an academic comes with its own challenges. Um, right. Some of those things might not le- necessarily lend themselves to, for example, long-term stability. Lots of academics in the UK move between institutions on a kind of four-year basis until they, to get to the point that they can get themselves established. Whereas yes. taking a more conventional career um, path uh, potentially gives you a bit more stability up front. I've been with BAE since I, I left university, so maybe that's maybe that's a trick I'm missing. Um, not that I'm inviting recruiters, but um, yeah, um, it, the the question for me was not necessarily one for um, 
what was most interesting, but it, it was about life priorities. And mm-hmm. to take it back to your diversity point, that is also something that we need to be very acutely aware of when it comes to diversity in cyber, because the life priorities of, I think, as you said earlier, earlier on, middle-aged white men fundamentally don't align with the rest of society necessarily. And mm-hmm. we need to be very cognizant of that so that um, we can really capitalize on the talent pool that is available to us, but is, is almost at this stage, I guess, almost artificially gated from us because of, um, um, I guess, the, the construct of, of what cyber is. Right. Yeah. That's um, that's awesome. It's well, and, and I think you know, having spent time in an academic world, right, thinking about earth sciences, geology, I have to imagine you know, thinking through kind of those kind of world problems, right, and then putting that lens onto cyber, it helps you come at things in a very different way as well. Um, and, and those are the things that we need. I, I think we've heard right, fine arts degrees or philosophy degrees or archaeology degrees Math, coming into music, cyber. Yeah, all of them. Yes, yeah, and it's. Uh, it's exciting. That's what we need. I think if we're ever, you know, kind of crack, crack that, you know, incident, uh, solving nut, right. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at it from a different perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what a great that's, show. I think that's very and, true. And, yeah. And Rachel, we're ending on a very positive note here on the, yes. on the diversity that we need to bring into the business. Take us home until next week though. It is that's time. Right. It is time. Well, Rob, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, so exciting to have you on the podcast this week. Thank you so much for having me, both of you. Rob, take care. Keep doing good things. Absolutely. And we'll talk to you soon. (laughs) Absolutely. And and to all of our great listeners out there, thanks again for joining us this week. And as always, don't forget to hit smash, grab that subscription button, uh, and you get a fresh episode in your email inbox every single Tuesday. It's kind of amazing. Just give me a good positive, (laughs) give us a good good, uh, comment on the on the uh, podcast app of your choice. We love comments. Until next week. Until next week, everyone, stay safe. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 